Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. No, maybe? Yeah, there you go. Welcome to the Tuesday, August 16th edition of Lifeline. A mildly embarrassed Craig Roberts here with you. Just, yeah, failed to plug the microphone in. (laughs) What can I say? The devil is in the details, as the old saying goes. Well, at any rate, good to have you with us on this uh, Tuesday edition of the program. Much to talk about today. We're going to unpack a number of uh, mildly controversial issues, but these days there seems to be plenty of that going around. So let's get down to cases, shall we? Uh, Leading off the conversation tonight, this is a topic that, quite frankly, shouldn't be a topic. It shouldn't be a topic on this program. It shouldn't be a topic amongst polite company. It shouldn't be a a topic amongst parents as they discuss what potentially their children may be facing or going through, and certainly shouldn't be a topic that's being promoted by one of America's leading children's hospitals. And um, if you think you've lived long enough to have seen it all, (laughs) oh wait, there's more. Let's uh, let's kind of pull back the curtain, shall we? Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX, and author of the best-selling The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. And, um, Brian, as I say, typically, e- even to five years ago, we would have never imagined, never dreamt that we would be having a conversation of this sort on the radio, and in particular, having discussions that border on child abuse, mutilation, malpractice, malfeasance. I mean, I, there, there's any number of, of uh, adjectives that would seem to describe what's been going on at Boston's Children's Hospital that they're now rapidly trying to um, sort of, uh, you know, kick the dust behind the door or underneath the carpet. Tell us what's going on. Well, well, Craig, i got to tell you, um, this Wanda, our friend Wanda, gave me the heads up on this. It's pretty stunning. You have the article there. One of the things that, as a an individual that addresses issues in the public square, and perhaps a bit prophetically, uh, it's very unfortunate when one sees those prophecies coming to pass. As you know, Craig, I've made the point for many years that the actual issue in Roe v. Wade, and as you just mentioned the book, and the issue in assisted suicide, which, as you know, I've dealt with for many years, is the role of the medical profession, medical ethics, and specifically what we have called historically for 3,000 years, the Hippocratic Oath. And in the Hippocratic Oath, a doctor swears something. And it's very interesting because no other member of society swears to that oath. It's a very powerful oath, and it's, again, older than Christianity. When Christianity came along, Christianity said, that is a good oath. What does the Hippocratic Oath say? 
It says, among other things, that a doctor will not take advantage of their patient, and specifically I will give no deadly medicine, even if asked, and in like manner I will not perform an abortion. I will not take a human life. Now, why is that significant? Because in every society, not just ours, but in every society that's ever existed, the medicine man is the most powerful member of the society. More powerful in primitive societies, they're more powerful and more feared than the chief of the tribe. Because that medicine man has powers that no one else knows. They have powers over human lives, and hopefully if they come to your hut and you need them to heal your body, hopefully they'll use herbs and medicine and knowledge, and most importantly their knowledge, to only help you. But that wasn't the case before the Hippocratic Oath. And if that medicine man came to your hut and you were paying them a chicken to heal you, if your neighbor wanted your hut and your plot and your wife, and your neighbor gave that medicine man a goat just to make it easy and to quickly have you dead, what would be wrong with that? There were no laws. There were no rules. And the medicine man still, I've, I've met medicine men in South Africa in, in Mission Kwasisi Bantu in, in, in KwaZulu-Natal. And they're scary. Our Western culture was established with the idea that there would be one person that you could go to, and whatever was wrong with you, you could tell them. You could say, look, I'm thinking this. I have these thoughts, or I have these feelings, or my body's doing this, and I don't understand it. Please help me. I'm desperate. And that one person in all of society swore they would never take advantage of your situation. They would never harm you, and especially they would never kill you. But that went out the window for the United States of America and our culture on January 22nd, 73. Because it wasn't just the fact that, yes, doctors could now kill babies. Doctors could now kill. Because before that time, doctors, not only did they not kill babies, every one of the several states, every state had a law governing abortion saying, hey, you just can't abort human babies. This is how you're going to have to follow this rule and that rule. And even in California, it was limited. It was controlled. But Roe v. Wade said, no. It's up to doctors and doctors alone. Doctors can decide when to kill, and it's in their judgment alone. And it even went so far as to say it's not a woman's decision. She can ask, but this is a medical decision. Doctors have the right to kill. And that's been lost on many people. But what's been lost is a precious, precious gift. It's our society. The whole idea that we care for the vulnerable, that we not give in to emotional requests, that we see the human person as having inherent dignity and worth, what Christianity calls made in the image of God. There's something about human beings. And if they're vulnerable, you just don't throw them out. You don't kick them out the door. If they're vulnerable in a just society, you protect them. But you never harm them. You never kill them. 
So we've seen that, thankfully, uh, that's, Justice Alito saw that was the issue, and he said, no, no, doctors aren't free to kill. It's up to each and every state to determine whether or not people are killed, human beings, and under what conditions. The state has to pass those laws. You just don't hand it over to a doctor to kill when he wants. So he's overturned Roe, but the, the genie's out of the bottle. And until we wake up to the incredible risk our culture is at, and we're seeing it. We're seeing people, and I hate to say this, I know Christians, that they have made their feelings paramount. How they feel. But feelings are transitory. That means they come and go. And now, because we have a culture, a whole culture that makes feelings what you want, the center of the universe, now if a young person, a young girl thinks, I don't know if I want to be a girl. I just feel like maybe I'm a guy. So these feelings have to be thought. I need somebody that's going to do something. I want you to know this. It isn't her fault. It's the agent of this physical change. When a doctor says, oh, okay, I can fix that, he's not addressing her problem. He's giving into feelings, and feelings are transitory. Well, and the other big issue here, too, and, and let's not escape this, and that is that, you know, if we were having a debate about whether or not it's appropriate for a person under the age of majority, meaning under 18, to get a piercing, to dye their hair purple to get a tattoo you know to varying degrees these are at least acts that do not cause permanent harm though i suppose in the case of the tattoo perhaps permanent uh disfiguration though certainly tattoo wearers of which i am not one uh, would probably uh, argue that point otherwise but the, the 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 point is that these are these are decisions that indeed at least have some opportunity to be reversed. And in most cases, in most states, you'll find that there are laws in place that someone under the age of majority cannot have these procedures performed. What's going on at Boston Children's Hospital is contrary to that. They are promoting gender-affirming, are you ready for this, for minors, gender-affirming hysterectomies, sterilization, chemical castration, in spite of the fact that these, unlike growing your hair out and going back to your natural hair color or removing the piercing or even laser treatment to remove a tattoo, these are irreversible procedures for which there is no, oops, I made a mistake, or gee, I've changed my mind, or gosh, I was only insert age here, 15, 16, 17 years old, I was immature, I was confused, I was getting mixed messages from friends, from society around me, I made a decision that in the moment seemed to be the right decision for me, but now, after further thought, in hindsight, I've determined that this was not the right decision, oops, sorry, too late, you've gone down a road for which there is no backup, there is no reverse, there is no way to go backwards, and so, once a child has had a quote-unquote gender-affirming hysterectomy, there is no decision that, yo, I've met this wonderful man and we're going to get married and I'd like to have children. Nope, that's not going to ever happen. 
And what what's sad is that you've got Boston children promoting the notion, bragging about the idea that they are, quote, the first pediatric and adolescent transgender health program in the United States. Now, I might probably argue with you that many eavesdropping on this conversation right now would say, Craig, there's no time and no place under no set of circumstances that I would ever support this kind of procedure for anyone of any age. I get that. But at the very least, don't you think that a child ought to be allowed to be a child? And if they choose to make a decision as an adult to marry a certain person, to go off to war, whatever it might be, that as an adult, they're of majority, they can make that decision, and it's one that they will have to live with for the rest of their lives. Hopefully they're old enough and mature enough mentally and psychologically to not make a really serious mistake. But, you know, we've all been kids. I bet everybody listening to this program at one point in their life was 15, 16 years old. Do you remember the crazy, goofy things that you thought and did and believed? And then as you grew older and more wiser and more educated and had more life experience, some of the things that you thought and believed in when you were barely 12 years old, you no longer hold true. But unfortunately, what's been going on at Boston Children's Hospital is encouraging, what else do we call it, genital mutilation, chemical castration regimens for minors that are utterly and completely irreversible. This, dear friends, is the place where we find ourselves at in 2022. For all of our boasting of being so incredibly advanced, there are ways in which this society is also so incredibly primitive to the point where it seems as if we're regressing. Brian, we've got to talk about this more in depth. I know you're going to be covering these topics and more on your own program. That, of course, is Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. We invite you to check that out online. And as well, you can go to the California Pro-Life Council's website for more information at californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee for that, um, shall we say, eye-opening, if not somewhat horrifying, update. Sad state of affairs. 520 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, it's uh, it's utterly a shame that over the last week or so there's not been much in the news cycle worth uh, talking. So uh, we've got those opera records uh, queued up there, Nate. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, lots to talk about today. And I and I want to do as we we dive into this conversation with um, a special guest. I, I I want to kind of put this in perspective that. This is not about the politics, though it's politically charged. It's not about Republicans and Democrats, though they certainly play a role. Uh, but rather, I want to take us back full circle to understanding the kind of government that we have, understanding what it means to essentially purge that government on two- to four-year to six-year, in the case of Senate, cycles, and uh, maybe get everybody to kind of tone down the rhetoric a few notches here, because it seems as if in the last week we have gone zero to 800 miles an hour, uh, much of it driven by emotion and partisan politics and anger, very little of it based on Constitution, what the rule of law looks like, and most importantly, our broader role 
in all of this. And I know some people, as they look at what unfolded in Florida last week, is saying, oh, it's a rogue government, it's a regime that's gone wild, it's all partisan politics. And uh, there's probably a modicum of truth to all of that. But it's also the part of the mechanism of our form of government at work. And when we call for regime change, it might perhaps do us well to understand at, at the core what that definition really means, what that really looks like. Joining me now is best-selling author, syndicated talk show host, He's a lawyer, a CPA, and one of the best constitutional historians that I know. He's the host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard locally in the Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And as always, Bob Zadek, thanks for carving out some time for us. Oh, and thank you for inviting me, Craig. It's always my pleasure. You know, we've been watching not only the the morphing information related to the news trickling out in a little bit more detail day by day, as well as pundits, quite frankly, from from both sides, from every political persuasion, uh, either celebrating the events that occurred in Florida last week or denouncing them as being, uh, you know, akin to a banana republic. And then on an increasing basis, I'm hearing things about, well, we need we need regime change but i wonder if at the end of the day we really fully understand what that means or quite frankly really understand the kind of government that we have so let's take a few moments and talk about it you know it's interesting you raise that greg the um there is an organization uh, headquartered in philadelphia that's not an accident i'm sure uh, home of our of where our founding documents were authored. Uh, this organization is called the National Constitution Center, and it is chartered by Congress. But before you think, uh oh, it's political. It is not. It is a nonprofit. It is independently run, and it exists for the sole purpose of inviting, helping people, giving people the tools to understand the Constitution specifically and how our government works. And it is chaired by, headed by Jeffrey Rosen, a constitutional scholar, a lawyer, of course, uh, and he has done a magnificent job of building a very useful tool for all of us. And it is non nonpartisan, absolutely, and they just make people smarter about our government. They have undertaken a project which they have called Restoring the Guardrails to Democracy. And it is predicated on the assumption that everybody would agree that things just don't seem to be working very well, things that are government-related in the broader sense of the word. I dare say, Craig, the entire country is grouchy and unhappy and dissatisfied even if your color is in charge you're not happy nobody is happy and the question is has democracy has our system frayed does it need to be a bit given a, a freshening up were there guide guardrails that used to exist, that don't exist anymore. 
or have become ineffective? Or are there missing guardrails that we should have so that we are simply happier, not with the result, but with how we got to the result? And they, in furtherance of that exploration, they invited three teams of scholars, conservative, progressive, libertarian, to, independent of each other, look at that question and offer their solutions based upon their political beliefs of what could be fixed in a straightforward manner just to make the process work better. And, Craig, what's interesting is all three teams came up with lots of valuable suggestions, and in many ways they kind of agreed at least with what the problem is. And I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Ilya Soman, who was representative of the Libertarian team, and spent an hour with Ilya on Sunday on my show, it's in the podcast now, exploring from the minds of the Libertarian team examples of what could be kind of easily, and maybe not so easily, fixed to make our system work better. Not to accomplish a better result, necessarily, but to make it work better. Get the sand out of the gears, if you will. And it is a fascinating exploration, and if you, it helps you to understand how everything works if you analyze it in that way. And it's astonishing how much can be fixed, not to cause different results, but at least to make the process of getting there feel better for all Americans. So it's a very timely uh, issue that you have raised on your show. You know, what I think is fascinating about all of this, uh, Bob, is as we, we kind of look at, you know, um, people that have been observing what's going on between Sacramento and Washington, D.C. for years, for, for maybe decades now, and then they engage in levels of rhetoric that suggest somehow we need to put a bomb under the whole thing, blow it up, and start fresh again. And then I'm I'm reminded of the fact that so many countries across the planet have, in an effort toward achieving a, a sense of parity for their people, the sense of, of a democracy, small d, that they have oftentimes used the United States Constitution, used America as the, the, the role model for how they fashion their own form of government. And, and yet some of the rhetoric, as I say, seem to suggest that, no, that, that's all wrong. And I'm, and I'm wondering if maybe part of the confusion here is that people are not really clear about where their frustration or anger or efforts toward change ought to be focused. I mean, at the end of the day, are we upset with our fundamental form of government? Are we saying that we would rather not be a constitutional republic? We don't want people to vote anymore. We'd like to have a leader in charge who makes decisions on our behalf that uh, is hopefully at all times malevolent and, and will always have um, his, his subjects, uh, or, her, or her in that case may be, her subjects' um, best interest at will um, or at heart? Or are we talking about a sense of frustration over some of the people and the actions that are taking place, again, at city, state, federal level, and therefore less about trying to 
change our form of government as much as changing the people that are in it. And, you know, I find it interesting, and I, I, I think I read a quote somewhere um, that one of our founding fathers, um, who, who was influential in, 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 in crafting so much of our of the, the, the mentality, the approach of our government, saying that, you know, the, the beautiful thing about way, the way this has all been crafted is that if you're not happy with what's going on in government, you've got the opportunity every two, four years, six years, in the case of the Senate, to make a change. And, and though historically we see in recent years we've had a tendency to put the same people back in again and again and again. So, you know, it, it kind of becomes the, the penultimate in, uh, in, in foolishness that we do nothing different in yet expect, expect different results every time. To give our audience one example, because it's a lot easier to, to give a specific recommendation than it is to speak in generalities, because the audience doesn't may become impatient and not really follow the point. So to give one example of, and this happened to be, a libertarian suggestion, but I think the audience will appreciate there's not much libertarian about it. It just makes sense. And that is that uh, you mentioned we can change government by voting every two or four or six years, depending upon the office for which we're voting. Nobody really feels that because a ballot vote is too insignificant. How you or I vote individually will not change anything, and we know it will not change. So it is as empty an act as is possible. It's like going to a sporting event and cheering for your team, and you yell as loud as you can, run, run, jump, jump, whatever you yell, and you kind of feel, well, you're participating, you're contributing to the result. But does anybody really think that by their yelling, look out or run, they are affecting the outcome of the play in the game? Of course not. And I dare say that voting is with ballot box is as meaningful an act as cheering in the stadium. You feel like you are participating, but you're hardly affecting the outcome, and you kind of know it. Now, what is the point of my saying that? Because there are other kinds of voting that libertarians, for example, would invite people to be able to do because it's more meaningful. And that is called either foot voting, which I'll explain very simple, or voting with dollars. Now, foot voting. Foot voting is a way to express your displeasure with your government. Let's say your state. You don't, you're not happy with the progressive politics in California. You move to Texas or Nevada or perhaps Arizona, some state, where you feel more comfortable. And that voting makes a difference. Politicians will be aware of the fact that their customers have left the state, and they will 
presumably either get the message or be voted out of office because they're, what they're selling, they're losing customers. Not only that, but even if you don't cause Newsom, for example, to change his ways, what you have done by foot voting is you have actually made your life better. You really have, or else you wouldn't have moved. Whereas in ballot voting, you never make your life any better, any more than cheering at a game affects the outcome. So, therefore, foot voting is to be encouraged. What is, how does that translate, simply by way of example, into policy? Hold that thought for a minute, Bob, because I want to jump in and, and take a quick time out and come back with more. Uh, and, and the only modification that I might say is that there is one fundamental difference, and that is that where in the example of the spectators in the stadium, you don't, you're cheering them on, but it really ultimately has absolutely zero outcome on the field. The only difference is that if you had the empowerment as a spectator to also influence which players got hired and put on the team and which didn't. So collectively, while independently, you're right. And I think that people see that example and say, yeah, that makes absolutely sense. Independently, singularly, we don't have a lot of power, but collectively we do. And I suppose in some respects, we wind up with the kind of government that collectively we deserve. Bob Zadek with us today. He, of course, is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country. The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. Information, by the way, about Bob, his books, his guests, by going online to bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, Okay, we're going to unpack more of this subject as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So what's broken? Is it the system? Is it the fundamental form of our constitutional republic? Is it the people and actions of those that we hire to govern and to uh, to manage the affairs of state? Well, probably multiple layers dependent upon who you speak with. Ultimately, when we speak of regime change, though, what exactly does that mean? And are we truly saying that we somehow think that the, the constitutional republic form of government is somehow irreversibly broken and therefore needs to be blown up and replaced with what? There have been many forms of government down through recorded history, and I, I think one of the best quotes came. I uh, want to believe that this is, if memory serves me right, um, Winston Churchill, who said, democracy is the second worst form of government, all others being first. Bob Zadek with us tonight. We're um, working through some of these details. Bob, of course, is a syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, and uh, you can get more information, by the way, online about Bob's program by going to bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bob, I apologize. I had to cut you short there uh, just leading into the break, so let me turn it back over. Thank you so much, and I'm accustomed to being cut short, Craig. It's happened almost every single day that I open my eyes in the morning, <laughs> so I'm kind of used to it, and I'd worry if you didn't. So you never have to apologize. Uh, another example of that at least the libertarian team found to be in need of change, not core structural change, but we have all experienced, all of us, an abdication 
And it's understandable in a way. I'm not apologizing for it. In fact, I despise it. But the abdication of the entire uh, democratic branch of our government, that is to say the legislature, particularly in Washington. What do I mean by abdication? Well, senators and members of the House are determined to hold on to their jobs. And the way they hold on to their jobs is if they offer the public nothing to be angry about about them, they're likely to get they're more likely to get reelected. So therefore, if they do not ever cast hard votes, indeed if they never cast any votes, they are more likely to be reelected. And therefore the the members of the legislative branch have discovered a way to push decision-making out of the legislature, who likes to make decisions, and into either the executive branch by giving the president and the entire executive branch, the administrative state as it's called, all kinds of power, they do so by drafting very broad legislation, oh, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, and the like, and, and Obamacare, and leaving it up to the executive to figure out how to carry out the legislature so the executive branch gets all the heat, or by drafting vague statutes and let the courts, the Supreme Court ultimately, decide what it all means so they get the heat. And by doing so, they deflect attention to executive and judicial branches and away from the legislative, and they can be reelected. Now, as a result, look at how much is at stake when the Supreme Court decides things. Look at what happens. Judges get picketed. They get threatened. They have to be protected by police lest somebody harm them, all they have done is apply the Constitution to the statutes and to the facts before them. But they are stuck with having to make decisions because the legislative branch chose not to do so. Look what happens with immigration. Immigration policy should be a matter for the legislature. Everybody knows the system is broken, but the legislature is unable to pass immigration reform. They just can't, which means the president gets to decide. With the problems at the southern border, everybody yelled at Trump and then now yells at Biden. Well, all the president should be doing is faithfully carrying out the laws. He's an administrator. And the complaint, if any, should be at the legislature. But nobody is angry at the legislature because of the southern border. They're angry at the president. Another example of the legislature's abdication. We don't elect people because they say, elect me to Congress. I will do things. I will pass legislation. In other words, we don't care if somebody is good at their job of passing legislation. So the legislative system is terribly broken. Now, the, the libertarian view, and I'll learn the other two teams' views 
shortly when I interview them, the libertarian view is the president has too much power. Congress should take back the power, pass specific legislation, so the president has much less discretion and just has to run the place like the general manager of the country and not be making policy. That's yet another example of guardrails for democracy that have failed us. So a lot of this essentially comes down to almost um, uh, abdication of responsibility um, in in many respects. I mean, you know, we find, uh, for example, the use and overuse of things like executive orders that, you know, uh, are essentially today being used as, as a bypass for Congress or in, in, in many cases doing Congress's work for it. And, and, and by fiat, without that system of checks and balances, we run into very dangerous territory here. Now, certainly the following president can undo the previous president's executive order, and then too so can the judicial branch, though rarely does it happen. But it almost sounds as if it's not so much a question of the the, the fundamental um, construct of our government being flawed as much as the people factor being flawed, because those that have been given a specific responsibility charged by the Constitution have essentially abdicated, as, as you said earlier, that responsibility. And so suddenly now another branch is saying, well, if you won't do your job, I'll do your job for you. And indeed, I, the executive, who uh, am the top of the pyramid, I will fill the void that nobody else chooses to fill, and I will really exercise lots of power. Indeed, it's often been observed that the president, our president, has infinitely more power than any British monarch even fantasized about having. So to think we don't have a king, well, we don't have a king in terms of who picks the guy or woman, but we do have a king in terms of the power they have over, his president has over us. And that's a self-inflicted political wound. And we don't seem to care that much about the concentration in power. The founders feared any concentration of power, any concentration, other than in the people acting individually. But we have so much power concentrated in the presidency by dint of application that we, we don't feel we have a voice at all. It's too, so the libertarians would say, diminish the power. Foot voting, to come back to where we were before the last break, was that diminishes the power, that transfers power over you, the voter, from one person to another. You get to, in effect, pick those who have power over you, which, with a central federal government, you have infinitely less choice because your vote counts for so much less. It's a question of power over your own life. And, and you know, which I think is... 
is, is particularly troubling here is that part part of that abdication of, of of power from the legislative branch, which is intentionally supposed to be the branch closest to the people, and instead saying, you know, we're going to charge this this duty instead with the executive branch, or even use the judicial branch to 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 fix our problems, to right perceived wrongs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and then the notion, and this creeps in on both sides. So I want to be clear about this: that this is not a matter of guilt. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats in the audience listening will think, yeah, that's the Republicans. The Republicans in the audience will say, oh yeah, that really describes the Democrats. But at the end of the day, I think both parties have been very culpable in thinking that we can anoint a single man to move into the executive branch that will somehow redeem the nation, purge corruption, punish our enemies, right all of the perceived wrongs, and uh, and set the country on the right course again. Um, and, and while it's true that the executive branch does a lot of tone setting and, and, and provides that sense of, of, of leadership, um, to to somehow suggest that they are therefore all power and that all of the power should be concentrated in one individual. I don't care whether it's Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Independent, Green Party, who you are. That much singular concentration of power is an advocation of the bottom-up form of government that our founding fathers had not only envisioned but crafted in our constitutional republic, and we finally, you know, find ourselves coming back full circle to, um, you know, the, the the question posed to Franklin, um, uh, to Benjamin Franklin, and that is, you know, what what form of government have you given us as they were crafting the 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 founding papers of our nation? And the reply came back: a constitutional republic, if you can keep it. And and maybe that really comes down to the real question here, that as much as there is a tremendous sense, Bob, I think, of consternation and anger over one branch or another, uh, dependent upon your political persuasion in any given minute, you can hate all three, love one, ignore the other two, and in any combination thereof. But I would suppose if anything is broken, if we want to lay responsibility at the feet of anyone, it really comes back to the general public, doesn't it? It absolutely does, uh, although um, the the candidates do not offer much of a choice. And let me explain that. I, um, my personal bias, as your audience, I suspect, can detect, is that I just favor more freedom. Uh, not freedom to harm anybody, just a less intrusive government. When was the last time a candidate from either party for any office since Reagan has ran run on a platform, a very simple platform, I will support any legislation that transfers freedom back to the people and away from the government. Imagine anybody running for public office saying Democrat or Republican. I don't care. So long as the niche, what I'm asked to vote on, is pro-freedom, I'm for it. That's what I stand for. That would be, he would stand out, or she, like a sore thumb. And what is this person, nuts? And wouldn't get elected, because we have cheapened and devalued freedom. And therefore, for the most part, we have not been as a society 
aggressive enough in protecting our freedom. And if you don't protect it, it gets lost. The natural order of things is for government to grow and freedom to recede. James Madison. That's the natural order unless we do something to stop it. It doesn't have to be that way, but we have to affirmatively stop it. No, you're right. We ha- we've got to be actively engaged, and, and, and sadly, most Americans have been extremely disengaged, whether they vote at all or not, or if they do, how much attention that they pay. And I run into it all the time, even on this program, and I'm sure you've had the same situation with yours, where I, I will get emails and telephone calls on the 11th hour uh, wanting to know uh, Tuesday afternoon who they should vote for. It's like, are you really asking me? You've got to be kidding. If you listen to this program more than five minutes, you want to be able to overall craft an idea as to at least what the profile ought to look like of, of a, a candidate uh, he or she of which would be worthy or worthwhile of your vote. Sadly, though, we have, uh, as much as we've seen an abdication of responsibility of the legislative branch to the judicial or to the executive branch, then we find at the people level, we've just kind of said, oh, well, you know, we're not so worried about it. It'll all somehow work out. And and not recognizing that sometimes the bigger fight is not fighting to obtain democracy, but rather to keep it. And I'm afraid it's on the endangered species list. And, and, and anymore, not only do we find uh, how rare it would be is ten hen's teeth to find a candidate that is on a pro-freedom platform, even a candidate these days that speaks of real policies. Most of it is all about how to get the other guy, how to extract revenge, how to punish the other side. I, you know, if I hear one more time from a liberal, I mean, from a conservative perspective, how, how we're just, you know, we're we're going to just drive those libs, we're going to own the libs. You know, and and all we end up doing is further dividing the com- the country, and 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 rarely, if any, anymore, uh, engage in dialogue that is fruitful, and to be actively engaged in our own political future by doing everything we can to to defend, protect, and engage in this process of self-governance. And I tell you what, if we're not willing to to self-govern, uh, the day is going to come that a strong man will say, "Don't worry about it." I got you. I'll govern for you. And uh, you're right. Then we find ourselves even more so on that slippery slope where the very reason for um, many of our forefathers to escape England and the tyranny of the kings, that's going to look like child's play compared to the kind of power that we're slowly advocating in our own form of government to these branches and losing that sense of balance and uh, once we've done that, listen, at the end of the day, you know, the old uh, the old Shakespearean notion, we've met the enemy and he is us. Bob Zadek, the host of the Bob Zadek Show, again, Sundays at 8 a.m., information available on the web about Bob's program, guests, and topics at the Bob Zadek Show online, Bob Zadek, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com.